I was sitting on the Amazon River with my wife. We were just enjoying looking out over the Amazon. And uh, then we got up and started walking around. The ice, something that I'd never seen in any other country I visited, but in Brazil, people often just sit and read the Bible. And I saw it many, many times in Brazil. And there was a guy sitting, reading the Bible on a park bench. And so I went up to him and I said, that's a very good book. He turned and he looked at me and he said, it's more than a good book, it's God's book. And he just spoke with a booming voice, you know. And he's an older man. And he says, what's the word for me today? And he was, as I spoke with him, he was wanting me to share a, a current verse. And I thought, this is a beautiful custom that a believer meets another believer. They should have a hot word from the Lord, you know. So he shared a verse with me. And he says, what's the verse? So I went to Romans chapter 116 and I said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Well chosen, Dr. King. And I gave him that verse. And he looked at me and he said, You know, I was baptized in a Billy Graham crusade. Billy Graham mentored me. And at that time, there were some Pentecostal people who were right behind us, and they just started chuckling. This guy was just booming out these, these words. And he says, do you know what the purpose of every Christian is? He said, tell me, brother, tell me. He <laughs> said, babies, babies, we are to reproduce. Well, here I give that to you today. All the way from Brazil. Babies. I don't know how I tied that into singleness, but the point was it's not about physical babies, but spiritual babies. Let us be abundantly reproducing. Well, the title of this sermon is How We Can Remove Our Movement Back Up to Ramping Up to Velocity Speed. Because, you know, we at one time were a real movement where there was just a hive of activity. In fact, Ellen White has a whole section. She talks about the beehive in San Francisco where there are members just involved in health ministry and, and uh, restaurant ministry and visiting the sick and doing hypertherapy. And, and the church was just like a beehive, a swarming mass of activity. And today we have things structured, we have order, and we have some passion, but we just don't have the same intensity of the movement that we would like to see. I wrote a little poem a few years ago called The Vortex, and, and, I, I, and the vortex of our society is that everything really has to, to move so fast, you know? We're living in a day and age where, you know, faxes were not fast enough, so we replaced it with email. Email's not fast enough, so we replace it with instant chat, and, and uh, that's not fast enough. So we, we just continue to add apps, and, and the clock is running, and we got motion. But do we have time to, to rest and ask God? God, is all this movement that's keeping us in a, a swirling vortex of activity is it really amounting to the things we want to accomplish? Not only do we you know, have activity that surrounds our, our church life, but we have our home life, and we're cleaning the car, and getting our car repaired, and our house repaired, and our bodies clean, and going to the doctors, and dentists, and mechanics, and 
stores and there's junk mail and bills to fill and, and uh, personal mail. Oh man, there's graduation announcements, birth announcements, wedding announcements, funerals to attend. Uh, they don't usually come with announcements. There's strokes and you know sundry different stresses and diseases. I mean, it's a heavy load that we carry these days. And Christmas cards were inundated and life moves fast, fast, fast. And Jesus says in repentance and rest is salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. There's an interesting verse in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. It starts out by saying this. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says. The Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust in your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. He said, you will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. And normally, we just quote the first part of that verse. It's so calming, so lovely. About rest and salvation and strength. But it says, you would have none of it. And so it is that we fly around. We're going places, and we've got to be on the move, and we've got to read, and we've got to write, and we've got to, you know, like rockets, we're zooming on cars, and we hop on a plane, and we get off, and, uh, you know, there's birthdays to remember, and birthdays to forget. And I wonder if Jesus ever forgot Bert Peter's uh, birthday. Did they have birthday cards back then? Did it matter? Does it really matter? Cell services got to elevate those and credit card deals to mulling over and stocks to follow, mutual funds to consider, retirements to weigh, digital gear to download, upload, all in the commode. Put it there where it belongs. You know, this is a busy life. Have we turned away from the very thing that God wanted, that he intended to really move this movement? Did God need technology? To get the movement moving, how important is it that we have the high definition or the best cell phone or that we have the best vehicle? Is it really helping the movement? Because you see, I, I'm pretty direct here, friends, because today we are in a society that would try to... pull us into the same mindset as the world around us. And the Bible says, if you're a friend of the world, you're no friend of mine. I take this little article that I wrote for the Adventist Frontier magazine, and I apologize that I read it, but it, I wrote it a little better than I could say it. Unfortunately, I confess, I've saved more documents in my life than I've saved people. How about you? My computer asks, have you saved your work? Couldn't Microsoft pop up with a more pertinent question like, is your work worth saving? <laughs> or perhaps the best, forget your work, have you saved your neighbor? My computer can convert files from one version to another, but it can't convert Larry or Susan or Ollie or Usain. Before backups were so easy, I wept over lost data. You ever had that where you just... <laughs> 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 
I understand lost data, but do we really understand what the term lost people means? What is the second death all about? Gone. The Bible guarantees if you search for me with all your heart and all of your mind and with all of your Google, you will be saved. <laughs> A lot of Christians have laid down the sword for the mouse. I myself have spent a lot of time searching the internet. Searching, searching, clicking, clicking. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. Why didn't God say, if you search for cool stuff, you'll be saved? Hmm. Maybe that's a different gospel. I don't know if Jesus would have owned a laptop or not. Certainly he didn't have a desk, but he did have a lap. Maybe if he had had a computer, he would have kept a database of all the people he healed with some cool mapping and graphing features with percentages broken down in 3D pie graphs, the percent blind, the percent lepers, you know, with, uh, with a little focus, Jesus could have assigned Thomas or Peter to, to make sure digital video clips of the actual moments of healing. That could have been something. Maybe that's why Jesus needed 12 disciples. Several camera angles, computer support, lighting. Surely, at minimum, Jesus would have kept a database of contacts, you know, so that he could send out a newsletter. I can hear Matthew saying, don't forget, every one of those healings is a potential supporter of this ministry. If Jesus had a, a Macintosh power book, surely he would have been a better Christ with all the cool downloads and MP3 tunes to calm him down. And I'm sure he would have had a few DVDs in his rummage sack for the disciples on the nights they just wanted to kick back or were out of reach of the internet. Don't you think so? Wouldn't Jesus have been a better Christ if he could have only lived today? Oh, what Jesus could have done with a smartphone. You know, I don't like the way that sounds. In fact, that has to be wrong. Consider Abraham. He didn't have a search engine or a mouse. He found the Lord. Amazing. Jesus never said, I was in need of web hits and you clicked on me. If Jesus were talking to his disciples today, might he say, lay down your internets and follow me? <laughs> Jesus looks for modern disciples today. At Best Buy, will he find them? Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? We want to move this movement up to velocity speed. What are we going to need? I told you last night about a thing called faithful men, faithful women. And that faithfulness was the very thing that Jesus said is so important. It was the power to multiply the gospel seed that they had been given. That silver that, that you've been ransomed with to, to multiply it. That is what God calls faithful. But you know, there's something else that is almost a precursor to faithfulness that is so important. And it's this thing called conviction. Because nobody ever multiplies anything if they don't have conviction that they ought to do something with it. Conviction is stuff that changes the world. Noah had it. Abraham had it. David had it. 
Paul had it. You know, Paul was the, really the ISIS of his day. Now, conviction is neither moral or immoral. Because you've got to say, ISIS has got conviction. It takes a lot of courage to go and blow yourself up for conviction about something. Conviction brings endeavor. It wins races. Conviction is imagination and faith on the rails of truth. It works like gears to press and squeeze. In Turkey, they, they have a lot of oranges there. I used to watch the special machines. You could put a coin in, and it would kick off all of these gears, and an orange would fall down and roll on a ramp like this, and it would cut the orange out, and then it would just put it into a squeezer like that, and you have a cup down at the bottom, and you get this fresh cup of squeezed orange juice. They're very nice. Well, you know, that's what conviction does, is the Holy Spirit brings to mind something that propels us to go to the unreached, to go to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, to go to Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, Oman, these places that need the gospel. A few years ago, one of the, the uh, leaders in India, Watts, gave me a database of Indian people groups and the number of Christians that were in those people groups. I sat in front of Microsoft Excel and looked at people groups, 20 million, 14 million, 30 million, 17 million, percent Christian, zero, number of known Christians, zero, zero, zero. And I scrolled through this, scrolled through this. This was divided up by languages. The number of languages alone in India is enormous. And these are whole people groups. No known Christian among them. I just, I, I had never cried looking over a spreadsheet before, and I was just looking at this data, and I'm just weeping. Conviction. Paul was very clear about the point in which he got his conviction. It's, it's recorded in Acts chapter 26. Take a look there. Acts chapter 26 is, he's standing in front of King Agrippa, and he's, he's telling his testimony. His testimony shows up three different times in the book of Acts because it was part of who he was. It's the very thing that propelled him. Uh, you, you know, you're getting stoned, you're swimming out from a shipwreck, you're getting chased out of cities. You've got to have conviction. And Paul referenced this again and again where he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He falls down. He's blinded. He heard a voice. And the voice said to him this in verse 15. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hallelujah. Amen. Paul could not get those words out of his mind. It propelled him and compelled him to go. Turn to Romans chapter 15. He tells, tells there what his conviction was. Romans 15. 
And verse 20, he says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Wow, what a challenge! To go where the gospel has not gone. gone. It, it just consumed Paul. i got to go to the edge. i got to go to the edge. Has the gospel been there? I'll go somewhere else. You know what, friends? We live in a world that's very few places that have been explored. People gone to Antarctica. They've gone to the moon. They've gone to the, the, the depths of the Pacific Ocean. But there are places that are still an adventure. It's called the unreached. And you know, this world, we can say, oh, the missionaries have gone everywhere. They ain't. They haven't. There are places where there is no gospel, no crosses, no Christian has been there before. You can be the Apostle Paul of this age. We need daring men and women to stand up for Jesus Christ. Where do you get that kind of conviction? How are you going to give that kind of conviction to your congregation? And some young child there will begin to dream about living where he could get killed. Where is the conviction going to come from? One of my favorite uh, letters is from seminary professor of mine who I loved. His name is Daniel Augsburger. He was a great man of God. And uh, by the time he, I got to sit in his class, he was so old he had to just sit for all of his class. He couldn't even stand up. And uh, he shared a letter in a class on the Reformation from Francis Xavier to the Society at Rome uh, Francis Xavier wrote this letter to the Vatican, and it describes him as a missionary in India. Uh, no, just Xavier was in the Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and he found himself overwhelmed with work and translating the catechism and baptizing and converting and helping to bury the dead and answering problems and all this stuff. This, this vortex was overwhelming him. And so he writes this letter. And these are, these are words translated uh, from Latin, I suppose. It says this. So I hit on a way of serving all the people at once. As I could not go myself, I sent around children whom I could trust in my place. They went to the sick persons and assembled their families and neighbors and recited the creed with them and encouraged the sufferers to conceive a certain and well-founded confidence of their restoration. To make my tale short, God is moved by faith and piety of these children and restored a great number of sick persons, health, both of body and soul. How good God was to them. I have also charged these children to teach the rudiments of Christian doctrine to the ignorant in private houses, in the streets and crossways. As soon as I see that this has been well started in one village, I go to another and give the same instruction and commission to the children there. Amen. Hallelujah! You got the picture? These are kids. 
children. And he's teaching them the gospel. He's teaching them the rudiments. He goes on to describe exactly what he taught them. He taught them the catechism. And listen to these words. It is remarkable coming from a Catholic source. He says, after explaining the creed, I go on to the commandments. Teaching that the Christian law is contained in these ten precepts. And that everyone that observes them all faithfully is a good and true Christian and certain of eternal salvation. And that on the other hand, anyone who neglects even one of them is a bad Christian and will be cast into hell unless he is penitent of his sin. Interesting. And so these children, he goes on to describe how these children took this with such passion and conviction that they would see the idols of India and they would go around and break all of the idols and it started causing great disturbance. Could we trust children with this movement? Do we have to kind of coddle them and comic them? How many vacation Bible schools do you go to that they teach anything serious to the children? Is it not usually some uh, cartoon of a pirate and they try to weave in a storyline of the Bible? What could we trust our children with? I will never forget going to a Pentecostal training camp in Texas and sitting eating lunch with a boy that was 16 years old and he had been sent on a mission trip to Africa and he says, and I couldn't believe it was so beautiful. But when I prayed for that blind man and his sight came back, I was, I was overcome with worship for Jesus. How does it change a 16-year-old boy to experience a healing that has come through the prayer of his own mouth? How will we pick up this velocity? How will we grow in conviction? What are we giving to the, to the people that are in our congregations? Well, where does conviction come from? Conviction comes from the convictor. And the convictor is the Holy Spirit. Turn to John chapter 16. You see, we can't have conviction without the Holy Spirit. At least we can't have conviction about the gospel. We can't have conviction about, about spreading the name of Jesus. And in, in the Bible, everywhere that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, somehow it's tied in with missions. You remember in the end of Luke, when they have, uh, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem. He says, there's a big mission out there for you. Wait in Jerusalem until... You're, you're anointed with the promise that I have given to you of the Holy Spirit, right? And once you get the Holy Spirit, the disciples are praying there in the upper room, no mission, no mission, praying, praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly there is mission, because the work of the Holy Spirit is that which gives us a mission to talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus describes in John that the Spirit's Work is to convict the world of three things. He says this in verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. 
I like that. We should focus on the judgment where the prince of this world, Satan, is the focus, focal point of the wrath of God. <coughs> that was the intent. And unfortunately, there are some who have joined themselves with Satan, and they will receive that wrath. And our job, come out of Babylon. Come away from Satan. The wrath is coming. Get out of there. Amen? Amen. Well, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He convicts us of sin. This is part of the gospel that must be preached, is that men are sinful. That we are depraved. Because these days, what do children hear in school? You're somebody special. You're so wonderful. And you know, we're really having a trouble with this, is that people in this age can't imagine themselves as sinful. They're little gods and goddesses. That's how the, the new age thought, the pattern that's being placed into our, our school system. We are sinners. When we all look at ourselves, we recognize how far we fall short of the glory of God. And it is this conviction of sin that drives us then to Calvary. And he convicts us of righteousness, guilt in regard to righteousness, which means I have no righteousness of my own. But there is a righteousness that comes from Christ. And he describes this, he says, because... Why does Jesus say this? He says in verse 10, In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. What an odd description of righteousness he gives to this. Except for the fact that Jesus becomes our righteousness. And as he stands in front of the Father, the Father looks at Jesus and sees, he sees us who have claimed the name of Christ. That was not easily won. Because you see, Jesus was a man of conviction. And it was at Calvary that he, he, he knew, he came for this very reason, from the time that the star came over Bethlehem, that he's working with his disciples. He continues to say this, I will be going to the cross. I will be, you will see the Son of Man lifted up, and you will see the Son of Man suffering and being whipped and flogged. And then the day came, and there is Jesus talking about conviction. Conviction to go to the cross. He's making his way down the Via Della Rosa. And he's being whipped. He's, he's being kicked. And people are jeering. And the blood is coming from his head as the crown of thorns is struck again and again. And blood is coming. But Jesus continues to press forward. In my mind, I imagine like a bull in a Spanish, uh, a Spanish bullfight. There, that bull is angry. Jesus was determined. He was going on, and the matador thrust the spear in the back of the bull, and his blood is gushing out, and blood is flowing from Jesus. But he presses on to lay himself down on a cross, and the nails go in his hands, and they push that cross forward, and all he can say is, Father, forgive them. And that is your righteousness. And when you're convicted of that righteousness and that Jesus is your champion, there's suddenly this overwhelming sense. I will go. I gotta tell somebody. I gotta tell somebody. Jesus is alive. My sins are forgiven. I will go. 
How will people become convicted? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They see their sin. They see Jesus' righteousness. And they recognize that his judgment is soon to fall in this world. Jesus brings conviction. Jesus is a name like no other name. The Holy Spirit's job is to put that name out front on our lips. He is to introduce us, uh, introduce people to the name of Christ. Several years ago, I was working up in, in Nepal, in the Himalayas, where it's quite a bit cooler than here. And, uh, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, I had a chance to work with a group of men so precious. These men were gospel outreach workers and global pioneers. And my job was to go and train them in kind of pastoral ministry aspects. None of them had ever been taught how to serve communion. None of them had ever been taught in how to lay hands on the sick and anoint a person. And so I, I went and kind of fleshed out the breadth of ministry. How do you carry out ministry? How do you intercede for people? Something very worthy. Is there training in the uh, seminary here on aspects of application of the Holy Spirit? Applying the work of the Holy Spirit? I talked to them about this anointing. And there was one man who was just sitting in the back with his eyes closed the whole time. The rest of them up sitting, listening very closely, watching, participating. One man, I'm telling them how you could, you know, if there's somebody who is, is sick, or somebody that needs healing, this is what we can do for them. We're going through scripture. One man just sitting back there like this. I'm thinking, is this guy spiritually dead? What's the matter? Why isn't he fascinated with this topic, you know? And uh, so afterwards, I went and got acquainted with him. His name was Krishna. Come to find out, he was really a dynamo. And that all that I was saying was not new to him at all. Here's his story. So he had been a Hindu living up in the mountains. Now, when I was teaching this thing, some of these men had walked five days just to be at our seminar through the mountains. This was really a rugged area. He was living in a way out back village and uh, decided to go down to India to see his brother. He got on a bus, headed down there, and his brother had become a Christian. And so every day, the week that he stayed there, they had devotions at the house. And the brother would read some passage about Jesus, and they would have a prayer. And the passages he was going through were miracles of Christ. And so uh, Krishna heard about Jesus healing blind people. He heard about Jesus healing the deaf people. Well, after a week passed, he went to the bus station, and there was his little niece, and she said, Uncle Krishna, let me pray for you before you go. And so she held on her uncle's hand, and he's just telling me this story as, as it happened. I'm listening quite closely, and she prayed, Dear Jesus, keep my Uncle Krishna safe. Amen. He got on the bus. He's headed up back up to the Himalayan mountains. Another bus is coming down the path, and his bus honks the horn, swerves, and the bus topples down 1,500-foot embankment. Boom, 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 boom. Crash! Krishna wakes up, and there are mangled bodies everywhere.
square and he looks around. Everyone is dead except for him. He begins to feel himself. He's got blood all over himself and he realizes it's not his own blood and that he is whole and intact. And just then a voice from light as if from heaven, his little niece's voice, and Jesus, keep my uncle Krishna safe. And he looks up into the sky and he says, who are you, Jesus? Because he worshipped all different gods. He somehow made his way out of this thing and comes finally to his village. And he thinks, I have got to do honor to this God who has saved my life. And so his, his job, he was a tailor, he stitched clothing, and so he took down the sign that was on his tailor shop, and he made a new sign, and he called it Jesus Tailor. And he realized people are not going to know what this is all about. And so he, he put Jesus Taylor, sick people made well. Because that's all he knew about Jesus. Jesus makes sick people well. Well, people would come, they needed their shirts stitched. They're like, Krishna, what's going on here? You changed the name of your shop. Krishna would tell the testimony of his own miracle. And then he would start telling the random five or six stories of Jesus' healing that he knew. And they'd say, well, my uh, nephew has got a problem, or my mom is sick, or my brother is sick. And people started coming to his shop. Now, Krishna didn't know anything about healing at that time, except for that the name of Jesus was powerful. And so he would just take and touch the people, and he said, in the name of Jesus, be well. And he said, people started having miracles. People's arms that had been uh, not operative began to work, and their legs began to work. And he, he just described all different sorts of miracles. And he said for two years, he had no Bible. All he had was the name of Jesus. And he said so many people started coming to his shop that he could not anymore stitch clothes. And then somehow he obtained a Bible, learned the full message. Then he met an Adventist, learned a fuller message. And now he's sitting in my seminar about anointing the sick. Thinking back on all the miracles that he had seen the Holy Spirit carry out. Hallelujah. He shows me pictures of him healing a guy who had epilepsy. And he said, you know, this was a shaman priest, a, a, a Hindu priest. And he had epilepsy so bad he heard that a Christian could, could cure this. So he goes to a Pentecostal church and he stands in the back and he says, Everybody started falling all over the place. And the priest says, everybody here's got epilepsy. And he went out of the back. And uh, so then, then Krishna prayed for him. Krishna, Krishna had then, after he got a Bible, he, his method, he just set the Bible on and speak in words of power and hope and call in the name of Jesus. What's it going to take to get this movement moving again? Conviction? That Jesus is for real. Amen. The Holy Spirit is real. Amen. Brother.
Brothers and sisters, He wants to come into our life. He wants to work with us. If He can work with little children. You see, we've got every movement that has ever moved continues to push power down to the lowest levels. That if it was a military movement, you arm even the children with guns. Why? Because that's where movement moves, is on the edges, on the fringes. Push the power down. And over time, our power has gone up and up and up. Hey, let's put an end to it. Give the power back to the people. Give the Bible the power to preach, the power to heal. Jesus did it. It says right here in Matthew chapter 10 how he went about it. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. They were to be a conduit of power. I told you, I just had gotten back from West Virginia. I did a, a, a mini crusade there. It was a very special event because West Virginia is a very special place. You may talk about hillbillies here in Tennessee, but woo West Virginia, they really know how to make hillbillies there. I was in a place where this church, it had three members and all three of them smoked. I was driving one of the members home and he says, Pastor, you ever eat squirrel? <laughs> nope, never did that. His name was Chan. Uh, I said, never eat squirrel. Then just then, his girlfriend in the back seat, she pops up. Squirrel gravy's a lot better than squirrel. And he says, I don't know how to make squirrel gravy. I just make squirrel. I skin them and fry them. That's what I know. <laughs> I'm in a hillbilly territory, right? So. I'm talking with Chance, and he begins telling me that his house is haunted. And then at night, stuff's going up and down the stairs of his house. And, you know, he's, he's frightened about this. And I tell him, you know, you don't have to be a slave to Satan. I said, God has given us the name of Jesus. It is powerful. You can get rid of all this. I said, I will come to your house and let's pray. He started telling me why the house was haunted. He said, you know, the woman who lived there before, she hung herself in our kitchen. And, uh, and now her spirit lives down in our basement. When I go down there, there's just a cold, cold power that comes out of there. And I said, you know, this is all the tricks of Satan. These are the lies of Satan. I said, let's set your house free and set you free. And Chance looks at me, didn't have any teeth on the top row, and he says, that's a real good idea. <laughs> so I go to his house, and you know, we just anoint, simply anointed his windows. We pray, Jesus, come into this. Let the power that you intended, that you died for, that you raised to life for, we pray over every room in his house. That house was so poor, those guys didn't have a single chair in the house. They had beds, no chairs, not even a kitchen table. I was, I was amazed to be in this house. They didn't have ferrets, they had a snake, they, they had uh, several cats, and uh, one other thing, I don't know if it was fish, I think they had fish up in an aquarium. So I'm praying over this house. Little did I know, that I was training chance in the operation of the Holy Spirit. 
So two days later, we go over to a friend's house that he wanted me to meet his Aunt Bobo. Now, Aunt Bobo had a problem. She had bed bugs in her house. And so he wanted me to help her, help him carry out her bed onto the street. So we're carrying this heavy thing down the stairs, and I'm thinking, these bed bugs better not be jumping on me. And uh, I'm not afraid of demons, but bed bugs, they're a different ball. So I'm carrying this bed out to the street, and then we stand afterwards, and we're talking to, to his aunt there, and she's just, just a very funny, interesting person. And they, he, him and her and Chance begin talking back and forth, and she starts reflecting to him. She says, thank you, Chance, for coming to my house yesterday and praying to cast away all those ghosts. She said, I, my house is so, so spooky, and I'm so thankful that you prayed in the name of Jesus. Now, Chance hadn't told me that he'd gone about doing this. And I'm learning it secondhand. And he looks up just coy as anything and smiles at me, this toothless smile, because he had put into practice exactly what he had learned. <laughs> Operation of the Holy Spirit and the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. What is this movement? How is this movement going to pick up velocity? We're going to have to set down our computers. Set down our gadgets and our modern tricks and start living by the power of God. If it's your desire to be a minister, to be a lay, lay worker, to be a person who operates in the power of the Holy Spirit, if you can envision that and desire it, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you even now, I would ask, would you come forward and make a pledge of allegiance to the God Most High? I am an agent. Use me. I am a conduit. If that's your desire, come forward. This is a time where God is in pipelines, pipelines to minister to people. Heaven is showering down its power, and you will be that pipeline. Praise the Lord. God bless each of you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, before I pray, could you just lay your hand on someone next to you, just on the shoulder, touch one another. Father, this is a time, this is the hour we understand, Lord, that our movement somewhat deficient. It's somewhat lacking. It, it, it is slow. Father, help us. We are sinful. Convict us if there be baggage in our life, in our thought patterns, in our habits, in our devotional weakness that is limiting the flow of your power. For no individual here was called to carry the world, but you have called us to be dutiful, to be faithful. Today we surrender ourselves for that purpose. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you. In thy holy and precious name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.